0: In Philippi, very proud to be Roman citizens, very proud to live under the gospel of, you might say, of Caesar, that uh, Caesar was the one who was bringing a new age, Augustus Caesar, bringing a new age into the world, uh, bringing prosperity, bringing salvation. He was called the Saviour, Caesar, and then the Caesars that followed him. And so they're pleased to live under this um, regime. And of course as we see the language of the Gospels we see the very same language used but in relation to Jesus as the true Saviour, as the true Lord, as the one who is truly bringing a new age a new eon, a new way of being into the world through, through his own work in his death and resurrection and through the giving of the Spirit. And so what the Philippians were called to was this new way of life, what was called the Polituma, which was like a a new kind of citizenship or um, political way of life, you might say, living under the polis of uh, Christ, living under his gospel, announcing this new king and living in light of that. And living in the light of that required a new mind. And so we're going to talk about a couple of different things, contrasting the old way of thinking in the world and the new way of thinking, the new mind that we're called to embody and live and cultivate in Christ. And we saw that very first of all in Philippians chapter 2, where we had this idea of having the mind of Christ, the same mind that was in Messiah, Jesus, who did not consider equality of God something to be grasped and seized and held onto, but rather emptied himself. He became a servant, took on the form of. Of a human being and took on the form of a human being as a servant, obedient all the way to God, even to the death on Roman cross, contrasting Caesar as Lord to Jesus as Lord, condemned by the Romans, dying on a Roman cross, but overcoming. Every form of power that uh, Rome and the world, the world, the flesh and the devil, we might say, threw against him. He was the Lord who overcomes and he is the true Lord of the world, given the name above every name. And this is fantastic news for us. This is the news upon which we base all of our lives. That actually that this man, Jesus, is the one who has risen from the dead. God has granted him the name above every name. And in him, as a king, we participate in that life. And as we know, only God could have pulled that off. God himself was in Christ. God is Christ. Christ is God, second member of the Trinity. is pulled off um, this amazing salvation on our behalf. But the lesson for us here that Paul wants us to grasp is, we need to have the same mind, the same way of deliberating and thinking and evaluating our life, what we call phrenesis. This is practical reasoning, the way that we actually think about our life and make all our important decisions is supposed to be in the same form as which Jesus himself did that. And what does that look like? Well, we saw after that, that Paul himself bases his life, he's secure in his salvation, but he also sees that his life needs to conform to Jesus as well, to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and to participate in his sufferings. In the same way as Jesus was obedient in his suffering on behalf of God and proclaiming and living out the gospel, so too Paul um, sees the same thing happening for him. That he too will f- uh, join in the fellowship of christ's sufferings and in that unusual phrase that somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead that is just in terms of the conformity of his life not that he's hoping to work his way to the resurrection but he wants his life to be so patent on jesus life that he can speak in the same way that the suffering in faithfulness to god is pointing in the direction of a life that is faithful and attains to the resurrection of the dead he says he hasn't attained to all of that but he's pressing on like a race striving striving actually to to live in this regard pressing on toward the goal to win this prize for which God has called him heavenward in Christ Jesus there's two things about that and I have banged on about this probably over the last six months which calling me heaven he's not saying he's calling me to go to heaven when I die He's having an orientation towards heaven because, as we see at the beginning of Philippians 4, it is from heaven that we await the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ who will transform everything. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our whole orientation is towards the rule of heaven over the world. It's not about leaving earth to go to heaven. As we know, salvation is about the kingdom of God coming here. It's about a new Jerusalem, as Revelation puts it, coming to earth. It is, as Thessalonians puts it, Paul's earliest letters about the dead in Christ, rising first, those who are alive being transformed and meeting the Lord as he descends. So our citizenship is in heaven. We're oriented towards heaven. But what does that look like? So in these last couple of chapters, I want to uh, say that Paul's example, he sets as an example for us that we too are actually supposed to um, invest our lives in the word of Christ, in his message, in his gospel, and to actually live in a way that all of our life is shaped by that reality. And that's important too as we come to Philippians chapter 4 because what we see, there's a whole lot of different advice that's given to us and if we don't see it in the context of this um, spreading of the gospel and the spreading of Christ's rule around the world, that actually what we see this um, statements that Paul makes, we can kind of take as kind of homey advice and sometimes really bad advice the way that Christians sometimes use it. Um, kind of platitudes that you kind of stitch and put up on your wall, you know, versus taken out of context. Um, kind of a Christian self-help uh, solution to questions of anxiety and things like that. And what we want to do is actually slow down a little bit with some of that and say what is Paul actually talking about and how can I make sure that I don't misuse some of his advice as well to take encouragement from it but also not to distort it. So, chapter 4. If you have, I hope you have your Bibles in front of you because you really want to make sure that I'm um, not leading you astray. Not that I think I am but check it out. So at the end of chapter 3, we just saw that our citizenship in heaven were awaiting a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. and His power is going to transform everything, including our own bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, in the light of all of this, my brothers and sisters for whom I long and love, my joy and crown, Joy is going to be a big theme, isn't it, again? I oh, joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. This example that he set before us, which you can go back and again and read to yourself, is the basis on what he says to stand firm in the Lord because we exist in a world of opposition as well. That the spread of the gospel is not, hey, fantastic. Everyone's like, wow, this is so good. Um, we actually do find opposition. We do find that we are tempted and tested to pull back, to draw back minimise our claims about the lordship of Christ other alternative accounts of what salvation might look like are given to us and that as well and so Paul's calling here in the midst of this tiny little community in the midst of this um, massive empire stand firm in the Lord just as he said back there at the beginning in verse uh, 127 we had to stand firm in the Lord and that the privilege that we have is to believe in Christ and do you remember what he added to that? To believe into Christ but also to suffer. That's not good news, is it? Paul says, no, this is actually a sign actually that this is, you are on the right track. You are following the right Lord. The one who suffered, you also will suffer. Jesus said the same to us. So stand firm in the Lord. If we need to have the mind of Christ and a mind of humility, we also need to have a common mind together. If you're actually going to survive as a Christian community in the first century and the 21st century, we need to have a common mind. And so in verse 2, we actually have a problem here, which is of massive concern to Paul. And you know what? Paul doesn't often name names like this. Um... He's naming names he knows because he knows the church well, in one sense. I plead with you, Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life now these aren't don't be sexist here this is like oh here's two women who can't get on and and all the stereotypes and so forth these are two christian leaders in the church who have serious disagreement something to do we don't know something to do perhaps with the ministry and the way that it was to work maybe a theological disagreement of some kind or another They need to be of the same mind of the Lord because it's affecting the church. It's it's serious enough that Paul needs to make a special mention of it here to this community he cares about so much. Okay, so we don't know what it is, but we do know that these are two leaders. Okay, and this is just now a quick uh, side advert. So over the next um, uh, two months, what we're going to do is look at a number of different issues that come up. both in terms of issues that rise out of Scripture, ethical issues sometimes or other cultural and other issues, theological issues, um, some that um, are not in Scripture and that we need to look at Scripture to think how do we address them. Um, we're going to be looking at the issue of why we support wholeheartedly women in positions of leadership and teaching and, uh, of course, what we'll be also be doing is looking at um, 1 Timothy two, which you might um, recall is a text that even in this church upon a time was quite a divisive uh, one. So we're going to look in detail at that. The thing is that you never just want one text to rule everything, do you? Because we have here a very clear example of people who are working with Paul, among his co-workers, um, these two women, and um we need to take due consideration of this and many other texts like this um, before you just pull out a single difficult text and uh, make that the be all and end all of the issue. So that's just aside. the We are going to uh, look at that but at the moment this church needs a common mind. They have a serious leadership disagreement and it's disruptive uh, to everything. I don't know who the true companion is. No one actually knows. Um, hopefully the person who um, reads the letter knew that it was them, not me Yep. so this true companion of Paul to help these women we do need help in actually coming together coming of the same mind but both of these leaders need themselves to take responsibility and uh, seek the same mind together now when we're talking about bad advice, what this isn't and shouldn't be and we shouldn't use it this way is a way to shut people down Or to pretend there's not a disagreement, so it's not like Paul says, "Forget your disagreement and and just praise Jesus together." Um, Very often the church is really bad at handling disagreements. We're actually supposed to be good at it as part of our deal. Church is often bad at forgiveness. That's part of our deal. We're supposed to be actually good at working out how to work in terms of conflicts and forgiveness and how reconciliation should work. But very often we'll just rely on cliches and proof texts and things without really thinking it through. So for these two to come to a common mind in the Lord, they need to get together, they need to work it out, they need help from someone here that Paul trusts in order to actually um, be able to continue in the work that Paul and others are doing. It's all in the context of encouragement. They contended at Paul's side. They are part of one of his co-workers and their names are written in the Book of Life. So it's all about encouragement there in the context to, to do that. But we do need to have, where we have disagreements and there are big decisions for the church coming up and there might be disagreements about that. It is important that they are worked through well, that we don't ignore them, and that we actually seek to come to a common mind without shutting people down and without silencing uh, dissent. Amen? Good. I take that as a, like, a, almost like you just wrote down in blood that if there is a um, sign of name in blood that if there's uh, any issues that come up in the next few months that, um, yeah, you're in to uh, make it work second thing I want to say here as we go on further in this chapter is that a Christian community, a healthy Christian community needs to move from an anxious mind to the mind of peace. What does that mean? Again, you can see how that could immediately lead to a kind of a, a cliche or a, um, a denial of uh, anxiety and so forth. So let's not go that direction. But Paul says... Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, because this big theme of rejoicing. Rejoicing is not, again, trying to um, convince yourself that there are things in your life that are a problem, but they're not really a problem. Just ignore them, la, la, la. just rejoice. Sing a couple of extra songs, um, happy songs, yes, it's all good. But make your fundamental reality that you always come back to, that you always are reoriented to the Lord himself. The Lord... Who has risen rejoice in the lord always and he says i will say it again rejoice he said it back at the beginning of chapter three brothers and sisters rejoice in the lord because in the context of philippi with the opposition with the tensions that now are within the church the tensions in wider society with um the christian movement in the middle of this city of empire you need to be grounded in the important center and to rejoice because of the achievement of jesus because he is in fact lord because he is risen because he has given his spirit i say again rejoice and let your gentleness or even better actually there the word restraint be evident to all that is to the community around if you're actually getting pressure from people you're not getting work anymore you're getting slandered or um, other things happening because you're a Christian and Romans are ta- other Romans are taking away your business or they're saying you can't be trusted, you're not loyal to the emperor. Any different kinds of slanders, the temptation is because, right, well, off to court. And, um, or maybe you know, some other action that we can actually take in order to assert ourselves as, as a, um, a Christian group. And looking at this and looking at some of the commentators talking about this, I say the main theme here is actually is gentleness, but gentleness in terms of restraint and the way they they act toward others such that their difference, the difference that it is to be in Christ is evident to all those who actually look on. That's fundamental part of our witness, isn't it? Do we look different to the world around us? What is the shape of the life that we are called to, and how do we actually manifest or embody it um, to those around us? How is the difference of having the mind of Christ evident to all who look on? How are our practices giving witness to the kingdom of God before a watching world? So let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. What does that mean? It can be two things. One way that the phrase gets used in the New Testament at least is um, the idea that the, the Lord is not far from appearing. So the Lord is near. That feels a little less convincing t- uh, just under 2,000 years later. But actually, the other thing that it could well mean is actually he could be quoting from the Psalms. And in the Psalms, basically, in the midst of strife and struggle, The phrase is often used that the Lord is near, meaning he is close, he is there to be with you as a comforting presence, that he is there with you perhaps to act on your behalf. And not just because of the 2,000 years thing, but actually I think the latter is probably more likely that uh, in fact, yes, it's about God's comforting presence, that the Lord is near. You might think about uh, Matthew 28 that the great statement that all authority in heaven and earth is given to me that Jesus makes uh, just prior to his ascension to go and make disciples teaching them everything of commanding and baptising all the nations um, and I'm with you even to the end of the world the Lord is near so do not be anxious about anything but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. The Lord is near. He hears you. Don't be anxious about anything. And so Paul's remedy, you might say, to this uh, situation of tension and strife and need is prayer, or the fundamental Christian practice, is it not? To be someone who doesn't pray is really to be someone who is living in kind of parts and all of what it means to be Christian. To be Christian is actually to be in relationship with God. To be Christian is to act in a priestly way, praying um, for the world on behalf of God. Prayer is fundamental to who we are. It doesn't have to be complicated, doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be um, if you're not setting aside three hours a day praying, then, you know, are you really a Christian? But rather, our stance is always toward God in prayer and prayer on behalf of others. The anxiety issue here, don't, want, and this is where we've got to be careful about how we don't just take phrases out of context and turn them into platitudes or bad advice. This isn't sort of saying to somebody who's undergone trauma of some kind I will just quote this at them. You know, don't be anxious about everything. You know, just pray. Or somebody who is experiencing some form of um, uh, anxiety related to different events in life. Um, again, we don't just quote verses at them as if, like, in quoting that verse, we have summed up an entire psychological reality and situation. Okay. This is not something which I just want to say you put to people in place of, say, people who um, uh, need therapy or anything like that. But in the situation of anxiety about needs and so forth, perfect sense. Don't be anxious about everything. The Lord is near. He will take care of you. By prayer, petition, with thanksgiving. You have needs, ask God. The church has needs, we need to ask God. We don't, in a presumptuous way, you don't just say, well, God will just take care of everything, it's all okay. Bring your petitions to God, the Lord will hear you. Present your requests to God. With thanksgiving. Rehearse in your prayer, in your mind and in your prayers, the confidence that you have in how God has acted in the world, how God has acted in your life and be thankful and in a sense remind yourself and God who doesn't need reminding, but bring it forward in terms of thanksgiving, the good things, the past acts of God, what he has done in your life and thanksgiving for your in anticipation of what he will do that he hears you, he loves you and he will act on your behalf. The church Any church needs to act that way as well, primarily, in order to train each of us to do that. And then he says, the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, so we need to move from the mind of anxiety, the anxious mind, to the mind of peace. The mind of peace is one that is both peaceable and peaceful. Peaceable meaning that a whole manner of life, a whole way of being is to be, like Jesus said, to be peacemakers, to actually bring peace, shalom, into the world. A mind that's consumed by that, but also one that experiences the peace of God as well, peaceful in that regard. But both of those things belong together. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Interestingly, drawing on the analogy, the fact that he's under guard uh, at the moment with uh, Roman soldiers and uh, drawing on that analogy that in fact, yes, the peace of God itself will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus from what? From the anxiety, from the strife, from the worry that comes from their present situation. It keeps going. And this is where we get to an example of what would say the renewed mind from Romans 12. So finally my brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, what is lovely, whatever is admirable admirable or commendable, if anything is excellent um, or praiseworthy, think about such things. This is one of those things where you might say this is this would be very familiar to anyone living in the um, Greek-speaking uh, world in terms of philosophy and so forth, but it has a very different meaning in the Christian context in some of these things. We need to actually discipline ourselves and take some control over our minds. It's not something that God will just do for us. Okay, We need to actually discipline our minds. We need to take control of the things that we actually reflect and contemplate on. And he says here, well, whatever is true, so things that are truthful, think on those things. I think in our setting where we often have misinformation and the whole post-truth kind of thing, this is even more important than other. Whatever is true to have a commitment to truth. Whatever is noble, whatever is right or righteous, think on those things. Whatever actually is in conformity to how God wants us to live. Righteous means being aligned with that, both in terms of status and life. Whatever is pure, I mean, it's the language of holiness. Whatever the things are that, remember that holiness is associated with God and life and the avoidance of death and sin and the things that pollute, things that are pure, have them occupy your mind. Whatever is pleasing, whatever is admirable, or might say commendable, think on those things. We need to be self-critical about the way that our minds work, the things that we allow ourselves to say, things where we excuse ourselves the way that we talk to other people, maybe grudges that we hold and things like that and the way we talk about those sorts of things. We need to really discipline ourselves to think on the things that Christ requires of us. Whatever is admirable or commendable. And then whatever is excellent. And here's a word you don't see very often in the New Testament but I think it's an important one. You might say virtuous. It's actually the word for arete, for virtue. Whatever is excellent in terms of character and virtue. Things that are... Praiseworthy, a life that actually shows good character. Think about those kinds of things. To be told that we have to think about those things also says that this isn't something that just will come naturally, necessarily. We need to actually put in the effort. We need to be self-critical, allow others to criticise us uh, in a helpful way as well, to spur each other, provoke one another, to good works and which is actually missing on a couple of um, translations think about such things and whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me put this into practice and the God of peace will be with you so just notice there the Lord is near don't be anxious. Pray the, the uh, peace of God, which transcends all understanding, guard your heart and minds. Think on these things. Do the things that I've been telling you about, and the God of peace will be with you. It's all of these things in totality. There's, uh, Paul doesn't give us techniques to find personal peace. He takes us back to a person person of Christ, he takes us back to the example of following Christ his own example and that of others and then the call to actually do that ourselves and the God of peace will be with you not that he's waiting for you to perform and then will show up but rather he will be with you in your walk, he's there right with you you're aligned with what God wants for you Paul says he rejoiced greatly in the Lord, following his own example. Again, about the concern that we saw in the earlier chapters about how they had looked after him in every situation, um, that they had um, uh, provided for him a number of times, um, financially, materially, um, in his struggles. But he also brings his own example back here uh, again, that he knows what it is to be in need. He has learned um, a secret. I have learned the secret of being content in every and any situation whether I'm being well fed whether I'm hungry whether I'm living with plenty or I'm living in want whatever that situation I can do all this through him who gives me strength so yes please don't quote that one out of purpose uh, uh, context Uh, keep it to its uh, original purpose here that God does sustain us if we understand these things that Paul is saying, that he will give us strength in order to be able to come through all these situations. But notice it's not just that Paul is living as a lone hero of faith. He relies on his community as well. He relies on God, but he's relying on this community as well to actually help and share. And he has commended them through this whole letter about what they have actually shared. Not that I desire your gifts but what I desire is that more to be credited to your account I've received full payment and have more than enough I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent they're a fragrant offering an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God so note there as well in terms and this isn't like giving offerings in church but please do but Rather, this generosity of spirit, this actual material giving to support those in need and in supporting the work of the apostle is an act of worship. It is a sacrifice. It is a giving and offering to God which uh, is pleasing to God. But God refuses to be outdone. I don't know if anyone has ever tried to outdo God. And one, I would say, no, you have not. God always comes back in some form to give grace that goes well beyond anything that you have sacrificed. He says, my God will meet all of your needs, church, according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus, both in terms of what they need now and ultimately in terms of that salvation, the riches of his glory, the age to come, the awaiting of the appearing of the Saviour from heaven. All of these things will be uh, supplied. Makes me think um, of uh, Jesus uh, talking to the disciples saying, Everything that you've given up here will be given back to you, pressed down, shaken together, running over, It'll be given to you and in brothers and sisters now and in the age to come. So our present sacrifice has seen very little in terms of the recompense which we will receive now and massively more in the future and the age to come so we can trust God to take care of us we can trust God with the sacrifices that we make we're not investing into a kingdom which is going nowhere God puts it on the line for us to say trust me invest in what I'm doing give your whole life including what you own and earn into this and he will meet all of your needs That's not the prosperity gospel, by the way. This is just simply God's own willingness and desire to bless us and to further his kingdom and to involve us in the uh, miracles and works which he does. So to finish with Paul, to God, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. And as that benediction, I ask you all, please go and greet all of God's people in Christ Jesus. Um, don't worry about checking out the people in Caesar's household. That doesn't uh, work for us. But I pray the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, your spirit. Amen.